A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, did you hear? I've got a new book out. It's called How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom. I've been working on this baby for a number of years now. It's the distillation of about 50 years, 50 plus years now on the planet. The opportunity to sit down with hundreds of astonishing teachers and find patterns, you know, things that really, really moved the needle and also sharing a single idea, a single model, a lens on life that um, you'll hear once, you'll remember forever, and it may guide the way that you move into the world from this moment forward and hopefully make a really big difference. We have a really cool pre-order initiative going on where we're working with a foundation to plant trees as well. So when you pre-order your book, you'll get some pretty hardcore, amazing extra bonuses and gifts. And at the same time, you will help us plant what we hope to become a good life for us. We are on a mission to plant 10,000 trees as part of bringing this book to life. And I would love your help. I'd be so grateful for it. So if you want to learn more about how to get your copy of the book or maybe uh, become an ambassador, actually, we have an amazing ambassador experience as well. And also help us plant trees, plant that good life forest. Check out all the details at goodlifeproject.com slash book. Or you can just go ahead and click on the link in the show notes now. Thanks so much. I'm Jonathan Fields. On to our show. I've talked a lot about the incredibly crappy things that I heard after Matt died and that grieving people hear, you know, when their lives explode. And I think one of the most insidious is this idea that if your spiritual practice was deep enough, you would not be so upset by this. And, you know, the, the Eastern traditions tell us that we shouldn't be so attached. Well, neurobiologically, attachment is survival. 
Today's guest, Megan Devine, was a practicing therapist for a lot of years, working with clients on all sorts of struggles in life. But then in 2009, something happened in her own personal life that would forever change the way that she experienced life, even her desire to live for a long period of time, and also the way that she would relate to other people. She actually watched her partner die in front of her, drowning in a horrendous experience. So good to be hanging out with you. We first met, I think it was backstage probably, right? Or well, was we, it? we spoke on the phone before we met oh, backstage. Oh, right, 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 right. And then I had the, the wonderful honor of introducing you to mm-hmm. uh, a delicious crowd of 3,000 people at World Domination Summit last year. Yeah. And you came out. And it was interesting for me because the topic that you were about to speak about, I know it's a sensitive topic, is charged for some people. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And at the same time, I wanted to be respectful. I wanted to honor who you were and not sort of make light of what you were about to share. And at the same time, I really didn't want to share too much because I knew you had a powerful story to tell. And you came out and you told a really powerful story mm-hmm. and mesmerized people. And it's it's really part of your life work that I want to dive into today. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. So I thought maybe as sort of a fun jumping off point, actually... Yeah, I want to talk about your story. There's, We can kind of back our way into it a little bit. If somebody visits your website right now and they go to the Start Here tab on your website, mm. the very beginning, the first few words are, do you remember exactly what it says? I'm blanking. It's something no, like, it's been a bit. I'm so sorry that you're here, but yeah. welcome. The standard greeting of the griever, right? Like, I'm so sorry you have reason to be here and I'm so glad you, you found this place. Yeah. Right? Because people who find my website are in pain or someone they love is in pain and that mm. sucks. Yeah. And I'm also really glad that they're that they're there. Yeah, and it's I found it really powerful because it's I think that's what somebody wants to know the moment. I mean, the marker in me is like, okay, so you should tell the right person that they're in the right place immediately. Mm-hmm. And then the human in me kind of said, okay, this is somebody who is more in need of knowing that they're in the right place than almost anyone in the planet mm-hmm. at that point. So to just start the page for anybody who's not in that place is probably very jarring. Mm. But for anybody who is that person that that needs what you have to share in that moment, it's probably about the most powerful thing that they could read. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, and that's that's my intention, right? Yeah. I mean, there, it's such a wasteland out there when you're in that kind of pain, and to to spend that little energy that you have searching and searching and searching for the place that's going to reflect you and make sense to you. Hmm. I want people to know everywhere they go on my website that they are in the right place. That this is a place where where what's happening for them is is valid and real and gets reflected back to them and not made pretty. Nah. So you have been practicing therapist for 15, 20 years? 15, <laughs> 15 years, yeah. What got you into that field in the beginning? It's a, a funny story. So I was doing social action work for much of my 20s. I have a, a very overpriced and not terribly useful MFA, which was great at the time, but it didn't let me do what I wanted to do mm. in the world. And after working in sexual violence education and doing some non-clinical social action, social work for a long time, I just I realized that I didn't think I could do what I wanted to do without going back to school and, and becoming an actual therapist. So I did that. And I, I worked in that field for a long time and got tired. I got tired of sitting in an office and listening and not moving. And after quite a number of years, it started to feel like I was sort of a a disembodied head. Mm. I did really beautiful work and I know that and I trust that. And sitting there 
and just sort of talking about things wasn't wasn't working for me anymore. So I was I was ready to go, but then things happened and I came back. So you're doing this and you're feeling the sense of disembodiment. It, you know what's really interesting to me is I've been having a lot of conversations with people over the last couple of years, really, where they're deep into their work on some level. They're they're in some sort of either intellectual or therapeutic or emotion helping field. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've had a really similar experience where they feel like they're doing really good work or creating really good work. And at the same time, it feels like it's coming almost entirely from the neck up. Yeah. So it seems like that's a really common experience. I think so. I mean, when I say that, when I talk to other clinicians about why I wanted to leave, they just, you know, their bodies relax. They're like, I hate that. Mm. I hate that. I sit all day long. And it's such an interesting combination because again, like we, I know I was doing good work. We know we're doing beautiful, useful work, but if you can continue to do beautiful, useful work and not actually be present, like, is that really beautiful, useful work? And I used to say, if, if we could be outside, if we could be working in the garden or working in the barn somewhere and having these discussions, that would be great because we're we're present and we're here and and I love metaphor right so if we're out in the world there's so many stories that come back to us and so many things we can connect with and relate with but in my office there's only there's only so much input yeah what do you think of the idea also somebody once said to me and I'm sure this was taken from somebody else who's famous but <laughs> some variation of the phrase women speak face to face and men speak shoulder to shoulder and what the point that they were making was, and I actually don't think it's so much true, like a separation between women and men, but I think the bigger point that they were trying to make was that so much of the deeper conversation unlocks when you're not sitting down to have a conversation, but when you're just, you're working on a project together, shoulder to shoulder, mm-hmm. you know, you're needing a quilt, you're building a house, you're mm-hmm. whatever that thing where you're engaged in some form of actual, like almost manual labor or artistry or craft. Mm-hmm. And the... The conversation tumbles out as an aside, but it, it ends up actually, you for some reason, you allow yourself to go to a much deeper place in that conversation than if you sat down for the purpose of having a specific conversation about a specific topic. I'm curious what your thoughts are on yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, that's parallel play, yeah. right? And I think that also comes back in some ways to learning styles, that if we sit down and we decide we're going to have this conversation, you kind of have to psych yourself up for it. But if we know we're going to talk about this, but we're also not really looking at it directly, we can we can sort of join it obliquely. And it's easier. It sort of like disarms the defenses. Mm. And I think, you know, creative therapies, art therapy and stuff can do that in some ways. But, but I, I absolutely think that when we're moving, we can come at difficult things from a different angle and join them that way. Yeah. I, well, I guess also that's part of what happens in physical yoga practices and yeah. other physical practices. Back when I was teaching, I saw so many people weep openly at any given moment in a class, especially there were certain postures where you, you knew mm-hmm. that if anyone was holding anything, I never believed really before I was teaching mm-hmm. that this was, you could literally put somebody's body into position and all of a sudden emotions were just, yeah. but it, I saw it happen so many times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when we when we align ourselves with what's true, and that's what we're doing in yoga practice, right, then those then those things can get unlocked, and they can cascade, and they can cascade in a way that you're not, oh, I have to talk about this, like, in the container of yoga practice. Yeah, in right? a safe place also. Yeah, like that energy can, can flow, and it can release itself. Yeah. So you're going about your practice, mm-hmm. still feeling a little bit weird about it, and then you're still practicing 2009? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then a day comes that changes your life. Yeah. Want to hear about it? I do. 
So in 2009, I was practicing and, as we've been saying, tired of it and really ready to to leave it. My partner was going to take over financial responsibility for our family so that I could quit and start working on farms so that I could stop working with humans. And it was a beautiful, ordinary, fine summer day. It had been raining in Maine where we lived for six solid weeks. It's a lot of rain. And we stopped by our usual river to go for a swim before picking up Matt's son at the airport. He was coming back home after visiting his mom for his birthday. And we were walking in the woods with our dog and the river was beautiful. You know, it was it was big because there was so much rain and we kept stopping in the woods and Matt kept pointing out how gorgeous the water was and how the features had changed. And we got to the place where we normally went in for a swim and he he walked into the water and I stayed in the in the woods with the dog because I was playing with the dog and you know, you know Matt's been he's half mountain goat, so you know, didn't even occur to me to be worried about him. And he walked into the water to go for a swim and I heard him cough. And I turned to the dog and I was like, man, he sure makes a lot of noise with water up his nose. And, uh, you know, again, no alarm bells, no anything. And I didn't realize anything was wrong until he called out for help and he called out my name. And I, I turned around and looked and he was holding onto the top of a tree on what we used to call dog wash island. So we used to take the dog up there to soap him up and then throw the ball and he could go get rinsed off. And little tiny tree on that island that was then only visible by about the top foot and a half or so. And that was the the point where, you know, you go into really calm, clear emergency mode and ran into the water after him, but he was carried off by a current. And the dog and I got into the water and we were carried down the river for two miles before we got sort of thrown by, back out by the rapids. Mm. And then we wandered in the woods for two hours, completely confused and disoriented. And, and so you had, at around. that point, you had no idea where he was? No, or? I had no idea where he was. The last time I saw him was when he let go of the top of the tree. Right. But you knew by the fact, I guess, you saw him struggling. And then when you got swept away by the current, that was so powerful. Yeah. There was I mean, something. From the, from the surface, it didn't, it didn't appear dangerous. I mean, that man had decades of experience in the wilderness and in the water. And, you know, neither of us had a single alarm bell go off about mm. that. And just from looking at the surface of the water, it didn't look fast at all. But when I got in there and felt how powerful it was, it's like, this is incredible. And I mean, I wasn't thinking that, but you know, if I allow myself to look back at that moment, like that was insane, right? I mean, it carried a giant dog and I for two miles before we happened to get stuck in some reeds and get out. So the dog and I were lost in the woods for a couple hours. And finally saw a housing development across a big field and walked out and, and got help and got driven back. And the wardens searched for Matt for another two hours or so with divers and search planes and all of those things. Then they finally found his body actually pretty close to where I had last seen him. He got His body got stuck in some reeds. Mm. And that was it. And that was the world exploded. That was the most surreal thing ever, right? Like, Here's this beautiful, normal day. And then suddenly the world splits open and everybody is going around like everything is normal or fine or that it's the same world and it is not the same world. And having to call my stepson, you know, who we're supposed to go pick up at the airport and say, kiddo, somebody else is going to come get you and your, your dad died. How do you say that? How do you say that over and over and over to... You know, the next the next morning, I went back to our normal coffee shop and told the people who knew us every day, like walked in and took them all aside 
and said, I, I want you to hear this from me before you hear this from anybody else. But Matt died yesterday. It's, it's boggling. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm, my sense is that so many of us picture loss as seeing it coming, mm. you know, and we don't picture it like that. We don't picture young, fit, healthy, and beautiful, normal moment one second and the next second. Like you said, everything has changed forever. I think we, we tend to think of if something like that, if, if a, a loss on that level happens either to us or in our lives, like there's in some way mm. it'll be telegraphed, you know, yeah. we'll be able to prepare for it. Yeah, we should know. Yeah. If we were in tune with ourselves enough, we would know. Yeah. The only experience I've had with anything like that was 9-11 being mm. in New York mm -hmm. and, you know, knowing somebody who we knew who went to work that morning. Not expecting not to come home. Exactly. But he didn't. Right. You know, and it, of all of the emotions that enveloped me during that window of time, mm. that realization was the thing that rattled me more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. One of Matt's friends who I spoke with soon after he died said, you know, our, our death is right beside us all the time and we never know when we're going to cross that line. And I think we have such an aversion to both death and grief because the, the reality of that statement is terrifying for people. You have no idea. And I think that gets sort of gets sort of a rainbow gloss over it, you know, like, oh, live each day like it's your last. Like the reality of that statement is actually much deeper and much more challenging. Like how do we how do we live here knowing that anything can change at any moment but not be terrified of that? Right? I mean I'll I'll often say to people, you're not safe, but you're not in danger either. Anything can change, right? I mean, we're sitting in this lovely studio with the birds singing outside and anything could be hurtling towards us right at this moment. It's true. Mm -hmm. Asteroids. Crazy pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the subway, especially in New York City. Mm. It's, it's, it's madness. I was on the subway yesterday and just sitting there and there was a gentleman who looked homeless and probably was struggling with some sort of mental condition. Uh, I don't know if that's the proper way to phrase it. Sure. but And... He was walking up and down in the subway car mm. and uh, muttering and gesticulating. And then I glanced up at one point and realized his both hands um, wrapped around something in front of his chest and he's kind of making almost stabbing movements. And what he's holding is actually a branch, a small branch from a tree that's been sharpened at the end. Mm. <laughs> and you're just like, please don't use that. Yeah. Um, not on yourself and not on others. Yeah. You know, you brought up this thing that where people say it's this really powerful reminder to live each moment and embrace it. And and uh, on some level, I, I think I think that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Steve Jobs' famous commencement talk that right. everybody loves to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, like the greatest reminder to live, you know, is the notion that death is, you know, could be around the corner. And I find that mobilizing. Mm. It's also terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there there is, this has been thrown around, I have no idea if it's true or not, but I've, I've heard slash read that Dalai Lama meditates on impermanence on death, mm -hmm. something like six times a day. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a fairly regular contemplation in Buddhist practice. Yeah. And every once in a while I do that. Mm -hmm. I meditate on my own death. I meditate on the death of those who are closest to me, mm -hmm. who I love dearly. And it's horrible. Yeah. And it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that particular one. Matt actually had a practice of imagining his son's death. Imagining his death, he was okay with. But imagining his son's death really 
to use his language, agitated him. Mm. So he, he had that as a practice in order to maintain equanimity. And, you know, a lot of people said after Matsai, like he was so solid. He just, he just had such a deep foundation and he was so okay with death that I know he was fine with this. I was there. He was not fine with it. I mean, I know that man, like at the moment when he somehow realized and recognized that this was it, I have no doubt that he was in his Zen bliss bubble because I know that man. I saw him before that. That was not, not fighting, right? I think we have this idea sometimes that we, if we are rooted enough in our practice, that we will never fight anything, that we'll never be upset about something. Uh, I've talked a lot about the incredibly crappy things that I heard after Matt died and that grieving people hear, you know, when their lives explode. And I think one of the most insidious is this idea that if your spiritual practice was deep enough, you would not be so upset by this. And, you know, the, the Eastern traditions tell us that we shouldn't be so attached. Well, neurobiologically, attachment is survival. Of course we attach to each other. Of course we're upset. Of course we're destroyed when somebody we love is ripped out of our lives. The point of practice is not that you're unflappable, but that you have roots or a container that can hold you no matter how destroyed you feel. Right? So I love that practice. I love keeping that in our minds and in our hearts that anyone we love and even people we don't like, anything, this entire planet can disappear at any time. Yes, please reflect on that. Think about that because it, it can be that motivation for, I'm so tempted to swear like crazy. I'm going to try not to. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's a all... podcast. You can go wherever you want to go. <laughs> oh, careful. It's not, it's not like public uh, radio. But so. this, this temptation to stop fucking around. Or this, this motivation to stop fucking around, right? Like, there is no time to waste with circumstances or situations or humans that don't serve you to the best of your ability. There's no time for that. And I think that that focus and that meditation on everything I love can be vaporized. It does lend that urgency to like, what am I doing with this person in my life? Or what am I doing in this job that doesn't feel good to me? What am I doing not being in alignment with myself? I love that. But this idea that the more you focus on impermanence, the more Zen you will be when impermanence shows up. I don't think that's kind. I don't think that's fair because it gives us this idea that when we're in pain, we're only doing it well or healthy if we're completely like monotone Zen, that's not true. I mean, it also brings blame into Absolutely. the equation. Oh, it's, it's sort so of like pervasive. The reason that you feel this way, in I mean, you couldn't control what happened, but you know, you can control how you respond to it. And one of the reasons you're feeling this way is because of your you or your practice or your behaviors or your assumptions yeah. and. You know, so if you would just change this, you know, or if you had done things better, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be in such a dark place. That's right. If you would just change your thoughts, pumpkin, everything would be fine, and you would know that everything is just exactly as it needs to be. Uh, did you hear? Oh a lot my of god! <laughs> yeah, it's really a testament to my previous practice that I did not punch more people. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's it's so pervasive. And um, I was talking with somebody here in town about this the other day that all of that stuff is really the puritanical blame model put into new Eastern clothing. Hmm. Take right? me more into that. Yeah. So that sort of early religious idea that if things aren't going well for you, you're not good enough. You're not following the scriptures enough. You're not, you know, you're not pleasing God. 
And if you are pleasing God and you're doing everything you're supposed to do and bad shit happens, well, then your reward is later, right? Like there's never any acknowledgement or okayness about the fact that life goes sideways sometimes. So you take that sort of puritanical blame model where if something is going wrong, you caused it, you displeased God. And we put that into whether it's pop psychology or pseudo Eastern philosophy that if you know your thoughts create your reality, I actually had people tell me that I created Matt's death with my thoughts. Really? I'm that powerful? I am really fucking powerful, but I am not that powerful. And what about everybody else's thoughts who loved him? What about his own thoughts? Can we give him some autonomy and sovereignty over his own life? Right? So inside that is still that if something is going wrong in your life or something is painful, you somehow caused this. And that it's happened and you are so upset that's that shows how not developed you are and how not deep you are. I have really, really good hearing. And the number of times I heard people say, wow, she must not have been very stable before this happened if she's this upset now. Really? It's incredible. The kind of things we say to each other and to ourselves when we're in pain. It's intensely cruel and it's wrong. Yeah. I wonder if behind somebody saying that about you to somebody else mm-hmm. is their own fear. No, it's because, existential terror. Right. Because they, if they want to imagine that if they, God forbid, ever are in that same position, that they wouldn't be that on a hinge. And the possibility that you are them and, and they yeah. could end up going there is too much to handle. Absolutely. So instead they judge you as being other. Totally. It's, I have a, I have a theory that is not yet scientifically proven But the more unusual, random, or out of order the death, the more judgment the grieving person hears, Mm. right? Because if this can happen to Matt and I and our family and our world, you know, here's this strong, incredibly skilled, powerful man who walks into a river he's walked into a thousand times and drops dead, right? Anything can happen. That could be me. And we have that, we have that limbic resonance, right? Like our, our bodies recognize how fragile we are. And this could be me, like my child could disappear. My partner could not come home from work today, right? We hear about that stuff. And instead of letting that poignancy in, one of my favorite teachers used to say poignancy is kinship. And I love that. But we don't let poignancy be kinship. We feel that come into us and we go, oh shit, that could be me. So let me see what they did wrong, right? The only news story that I read after Matt died, I was never a news person anyway, but I read one news story that actually blamed him for his death because he was not wearing a life jacket. What grown up do you know wears a life jacket to go swimming? No. You read the comments section under any accidental death or earthquake or any of these things, and the comments are largely full of blame. What did they do wrong? They weren't wearing their seatbelt. They didn't eat right. They didn't exercise enough. They exercised too much. Blame, 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 blame. It's it's our way of otherizing. It's our way of giving distance so that this can't be me. And if we can't say like, oh, I wouldn't do all of those things so I'd be safe. If this did happen to me, I would deal with it much better than you were dealing with it. What we're doing is we're distancing ourselves from annihilation. We're hoping that we would survive. What's really called for there is silence and respect and acknowledging that, yes, this could also be me. And right now it's not. And this afternoon it might be. And we can let that poignancy run through us. It's like we were talking about in yoga practice when emotion comes up. We can let poignancy run through us and it will not kill us. 
it hurts, but it hurts because we're related, because we're connected. It should hurt. There's mm. nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think it also runs deep enough in some people that they actually stop themselves from developing those relationships that would lead to yeah. depth and poignancy should yeah. something major happen um, in the first place, just as a shield, um, yeah. and then go through life wondering why they're not feeling. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we do that personally, but I, I also really see that globally, right? When something awful happens, like we, you and I were just talking about Sandy Hook a minute ago, we get into debates and arguments and yelling at each other and all of these things, which is really a cover for, holy fuck, like so much pain in this world, right? And instead of being able to feel into that and respond, feel into the nightmare of that or the horror of that, we instead go into our brains and we start arguing with each other. Or I can't remember who I was reading, but she was she was talking about the tsunami back, I don't even remember my dates now because it was during my early grief time as a total fog, but I think it was 2011, the Boxing Day tsunami. And the the woman who wrote The Secret came out and said, like, those people who died during tsunami were clearly having tsunami thoughts, right? I know you're looking at me with this very perplexed face, but like, this is what I'm talking about is that in we do this whenever there's global trauma or war or, you know, environmental destruction, all of these things, it's almost like we don't think our human containers can can withstand that. So we we go into judgment and blame and here's why this happened and all of these sort of top level arguments about why this shit happens instead of just being able to look at each other and say, ow. Right? It's it's okay to look at each other and say, ow, we don't have to jump into arguing about who's right and who's wrong and what the hell we're going to do about it. The first thing to do is triage, which is match your heart with somebody else and recognize the pain they're in. It's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. Yeah, and it also, I mean, it brings on a level of emotional empathy that makes you maybe have to go there with them. Yeah. And we don't want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And honestly, I think about practice, whatever your practice is. Like, I think about that not as a way to keep steady, or a, a way to, honestly, I think that sometimes we think that doing good practice means we're going to be safer, right? Which is utter garbage. But what we're really doing is building like a spiritual IRA, right? So that when we do have to show up, when we do have to ask our organisms to go to that place, we have enough backup. Our roots go deep enough that we can actually withstand that. That there is something larger and deeper than us. Not that we'll make it better, but that can like absorb that shock. It's like we, it's why we go to big open landscapes when we're in pain or when we're you know out on a hike and we see that view, even if we're not in pain, like there's something in us that relaxes because there's something larger than us that can hold whatever's happening. So I've been doing a lot of research on awe lately mm, um, yeah. and how it literally just sort of rewires your mental models and, and your, the way you see yourself in the world. I guess it is probably why some people end up when when you have something so devastating happen to you, sort of retreating into the grand environments. Yeah, I don't know if retreat is the right word there, but maybe collapse. <laughs> maybe I don't yeah, know. Maybe it's not so deliberate. It's really just. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I think that I think that for a lot of people in pain, they're looking for that, whether they're finding it in the in the landscape or in themselves or or you know something. Because that's that's personal to each person, like what what feels like a vista that can hold that. And I think an important distinction there, though, is that 
we don't go to those places, whether in the world or in ourselves to feel better, right? Like awe is a wonderful thing and awe, I mean, I feel like awe is the root of my existence. I'm always like amazed at everything because everything is amazing, but that's not meant to make things like sunny and happy. And and sometimes we, I mean, I was in awe of everything just differently after Matt died. It's a much darker and sharper and harder awe, but it's still awe. And I think we have this idea that if you can only access that openness to wonder, you would feel better. Hmm. And none of this is about feeling better. It's about carrying what you have to carry. And how do we do that in a way that doesn't cause more damage? How do we find those places that we can lean into and find any kind of beauty as a companion for what's happening? And that's really how I think about all of the all of the things that we do to support ourselves and to support each other is that we're we do these things as companions, not as medicine to make anything better. Mm. Which doesn't seem like it's the common approach to somebody who's no. in grief. It's seems like it's all about how do you support somebody or how do you, as the person who's going through it, get to a place where you're better? And yeah, how can you get out of it? Right. And then, then if you're supporting that person, how do you help them feel better? Yeah. Is that a lot of, I'm curious because you had all this training as in, in therapy mm-hmm. for so many years before yeah. and, and work, practical work. Do you feel that that did anything to give you skills to- My professional history? Yeah. Or, or was it, did you learn things that were mm. almost antithesis in some ways? Yes to all of those. So when Matt first died, I wanted to call all of my former clients and apologize for being full of shit. I really felt like I knew nothing and I could check with some of my previous clients and be like, I feel like I was full of shit. And they're like, Oh no, no, no. I know that I did good work. I mean, that, that saved me. I also know that there are many things that I would have done differently. The tricky thing about clinical training for therapists is that for licensure reasons, the curriculum is very regulated. It's very strict. So within the course of a two and a half year program, you might get a four-hour class on grief, which is based on the stages of grief from Dr. Ross, who thought they were not useful for that herself. But you get very, very little about grief. And it's this medical pathology model about these stages that you go through. And if you're not doing the stages, you're not doing it correctly. And you know the whole point is to come back to normal as soon as possible. So you have all of these clinicians who think of grief as a problem and not everybody comes into your and, practice. And a linear process, too. Yeah, a linear right. process, for Pete's sake. What else is a linear process? Like, come on. But, you know, not everybody is going to come in with sort of devastating, catastrophic loss, but everybody who comes into your practice is in pain. Everybody is carrying some kind of grief. And if, as an institution, as a clinical institution, we think that's a problem, then we can never serve them. We can never meet anybody if we think what's going on for them is a problem that needs repair. So you find this in the clinical world, which trickles down into, you know, common human interaction in life. Like if our trained clinicians don't know how to companion grief in a way that is respectful and offers somebody's sovereignty back to them, then the average person really doesn't stand a chance. Right, where you, you take like otherwise incredibly intelligent humans and they think that their job is to make you feel better. That is not your job. Your job is to companion what's happening, to come up alongside somebody and give them something to lean on while they fall apart, not to make them stop falling apart. Right? Mm. It's, it's ridiculous. And there's right timing 
in there, right? Like you meet the situation that faces you. The time to talk about feeling better or rebuilding your life is not at the moment when somebody's life exploded. That's not the time. Hmm. So how do you find your way out? I mean, because Mm -hmm. if you're training to that point and you're the person who's had quote training, whatever level of training Mm -hmm. there is available, you're somebody who's worked with clients, patients for years and years and years moving through moments. And when you are in that place, you realize this is all out the window. So how do you come to a place where you realize that the the goal is not to be better right now, but the goal is to figure out how to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I, I feel like what my own practice did, my own personal and professional practice did for me was let me know that being with what is, was right. Does that make sense? It wasn't very good English, but I knew enough to knew that the response that I was getting was wrong. In my practice before Matt died, like supporting somebody's emotions was what I did right? Like I was actually a really good companion. But I th- I know that I probably still had some foundation in there that our, our goal here was that you companion somebody so they can eventually move past this. And taking out that second part, that futurizing, that I think was what became so clear to me afterwards that like, don't worry about endgame. Endgame is irrelevant. So I'm, I'm really thankful to my earlier pre-death self that I, I knew how to listen to myself. I knew how to be fierce about what I needed and to not worry about hurting other people so much if they were not responding to me in a way that was helpful. And I always had such an intensely interior life. So I could lean on that. I won't say that that was a comfort because nothing was a comfort, but I knew the territory way, way back in my mid twenties. My undergraduate degree was cross-cultural ritual and religion and dance and spiritual studies. It was fascinating. So I I speak myth, right? Like that's my language. And after Matt died, people would come to me knowing my history and be like, here's this myth. Here's Inanna. Here's like, be like, that's fucking irrelevant. I do not care about any of this stuff. Like those myths don't help when your world's exploded because they're like, what do I care about? Some imaginary being who did this and this and this. Like if there's any myth that's going to help me, it's going to be Demeter, right? Because her daughter was abducted and taken to the underworld. And how did she respond? She made the entire world die. I'll take that, right? Like if we need a vision to live into, let's take the ones that actually mirror our reality. And and I think like, again, like that helped me, that facility with depth and imagery and language. Even if professionally I was like, ooh, we need to really change all of this stuff because it's crazy. That familiarity with deeper inner worlds and interiority, that served me. Hmm. That helped me. I, I probably might not have agreed with that in the first year or so after Matt died because it was just pain. It was just unrelenting pain. And those moments where I felt that deeper net come up alongside me helped. It let me get through the days where I wanted to be dead, but it didn't make me better. So I think the the biggest thing that I I take away from that sort of that bridge between my professional life before and my professional life now is that that different orientation point of what better looks like. And sometimes better looks horrendous because that's what's valid. How do you redefine how you live in the world then? Hmm. I think, um, I mean, what I often tell people is 
finding alignment with your own heart and using your own heart as a compass for how you want to live given that you are still alive. How do we do that? And how do we really practice listening to what's true for us and living that? I mean, so for a lot of people, especially people who are widowed quite young, they're like, how am I supposed to live another 40 years, another 50 years after this? And knowing that this isn't ever going to be rosy, and, and maybe it is, but that's irrelevant in those early days, what you've got is your own sovereignty. You've got your own compass that is never going to fail you. So you make choices that are in alignment with both the love that you had before this event happened, the love that's beside you, and your love for yourself. So how do you listen for that? How do you come into alignment with that? And how do you make choices from that place, given the fact that you are still here? Hmm. I mean, the question that keeps coming into my head also is, you know, on the one hand, so how do I get through the day? But also there's got to be this other dark, and I know this, that I know this to be true, not from my own experience, but from dear friend of mine who we've also shared a conversation with on this podcast, Aaron Moon, who lost somebody yeah. very young. It's the darker side of that, which is how do you wake up every day and answer the question, why shouldn't I kill myself today? Mm -hmm. yeah. like, or, or why shouldn't, why is this not the day that I should die too? Exactly. Yeah. And we don't like to go there when no. we're not that person. Like we don't like to think that that's even a question in somebody's mind. Yeah. But if you're that person, as like Aaron said mm -hmm. to me so briefly, I mean, she's like, you know, her words were every day I wake up and every day there's like, there's a dark pit that I walk beside. Yeah. You know, and I have a decision to make, mm -hmm. like, am I going into it or not? That's right. Um, and especially in the early days, like yeah. that pit is everything and you are barely on the edge of it. Uh, One of the things that changes, we were joking earlier about time heals everything. One of the things that time does is it gives you a little bit more of a sidewalk around the pit. Hmm. Yeah. But that question in there about how do you not kill yourself? How do you deal with the fact that you wake up in the morning and your first thought after remembering again for the millionth time that they're dead how do you deal with the fact that you're pissed off that you woke up again right I and mean, this is really really common for people who are you know in those intense early days of grief like there's a big difference between actively being suicidal and wishing for all the world that you would stop waking up there's a difference there right and, and one of the things you know in the in the grief world and i i I get kind of sort of poetic and I say, I'm not in the grief business, I'm in the love business because it's true. But that it's a big thing in the grief world, this really common feeling of being pissed off that you woke up. Or one of my dear, dear, dear friends in the widowed world, one of the people who is the reason I survived, used to say like, if a piano was falling from the sky as I was walking past, I would not rush to get out of the way. Right? And that's normal. The way that I got through those moments, and I had a lot of them, I have a really deep and highly developed sense of responsibility, and I didn't want to create a scene that somebody else would have to clean up. So I wouldn't let go of the steering wheel of the car, even though I really wanted to, because I knew that first responders would have to come, and I didn't want that for them. Right, like you're giving me this face, like this is this no, is what I'm happens like, yeah, in my like, head, right? Like I don't want exactly point, by like whatever what means takes, necessary. Yeah. I also had a contract with another person who helped me survive. Her husband was killed in a horrific car accident. I think about a year after Matt died, and we had a deal that we would not off ourselves because of the impact it would have on the other, and we couldn't sustain any more losses that we could control. So however you get through is however you get through. Yeah. So there's no, this is what you do. No, I mean, there really isn't because I, I think 
all the things we think of when we hear that somebody is feeling suicidal, talking to them about how things are going to get better and you're so strong, you're so you know, smart, all of these things, like they don't resonate. They're not valid. You can't say that to somebody. Things are going to get better because where they are, things are not going to get better. They don't feel like they're going to get better. And honestly, living to that point where things feel better feels insurmountable and useless, right? So by whatever means necessary, there's a piece I have out on Modern Loss and shout out to Modern Loss about the first New Year's after Matt died. And I was in my kitchen on the floor where I spent a lot of the first year on the floor, like dragging myself across the floor, sobbing. And when the body goes through that kind of intense grief, like the, the sobs that rack your body are amazing. Like, and it's completely visceral and not voluntary, but crawling across the floor, trying to decide if today was the day I was actually going to kill myself. And I'm looking at the knives, which would have been a really poor choice, but looking at the knives and thinking I can either kill myself or I can make myself make cupcakes and go give them away somewhere. This is my choice right now. And I was crawling across the floor because I couldn't stand, climbing up the face of the cabinets and my phone rang and I decided to pick it up. And it was an old colleague of mine randomly calling me and said, I have this ritual that I do every New Year's where I go to the grocery store and I buy a lobster and I take it back to the water and I set it free. You need to join me. And I'm eyeing the knives and I'm eyeing the mixer and I went, I'll be right there. And I walked away and like that was, I probably wasn't going to kill myself again with the overdeveloped sense of responsibility and sort of a unquenchable curiosity for life, even in that moment. But that did it, right? Like how random at that moment where I'm at that choice point for somebody to call me and say, let's go liberate some lobsters. Mm. Right. So by whatever means necessary, which can also sort of loop us back into if you're supporting somebody in pain, don't be afraid of that shit. Right. I had people I could go to and say, those knives are looking really enticing right now. And they didn't freak. They understood. When we have people in our lives that we can go to and say what's true, we don't have to hide it. And if we don't have to hide it, then it doesn't become this sort of furtive, secretive thing that we're trying to hide from ourselves. And anytime we're doing that, it gets more dangerous. It gets harder to carry, right? So finding those people in your life to whom you can call up and be like, mm, this is one of those days when I don't want to be here anymore. I need something. And remembering not to focus on how things will be better later because in that moment later is completely irrelevant. What we have is right now and right now is pain. So how do we companion that? There's no one easy answer for that. But that intention of companioning what's actually happening in that moment, it's like, that's your Swiss army knife. Yeah. And I guess from the lens of somebody who wants to support that person, mm -hmm. just maybe letting them know I, I can be your person. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to talk to me about this. And back a million years ago, it seems now when I was doing sexual violence education in the schools, some of the educators used to wear buttons that said, it's okay to talk to me about rape. It's okay to talk to me about child abuse or whatever the language was. It's this permission giving that I am a safe person for you to talk to because I'm not going to talk you out of it, right? Which sort of seems like the antithesis of being a support person. I'm supposed to talk you out of feeling suicidal. No, I'm not. I'm supposed to be here with you. I'm supposed to sidle up alongside you and be with you when you're in pain. That's compassion. That's presence, 
that's allowing somebody the truth of their reality. So just like looping back to what we were talking about in yogic practice, when emotions start flowing, like your job is to allow that. Mm. I, I remember as a teacher, students would sometimes come to me after class and apologize mm. for becoming so emotional. Yeah, And it revealed to me this sense of impropriety that we associate with going there, mm-hmm. even on a very you know, a, a much less intense yeah. level, that you know somebody would actually feel the need to have to apologize mm-hmm. to teacher um, who was in a room who just happened to offer a sequence of body positions that in some way triggered some sort of emotional experience yeah. that in some way that was affrontive to me as a teacher, yeah. that somebody would feel that, that there's something in their family or their history or in mm-hmm. culture that we, there's that layer yeah. that we create that people would feel that both when you're in that place. And again, like when you're supporting somebody or trying to figure out how to support. And and again, the thing that keeps coming back to me is just this, is the culture of better that the, mm-hmm. the thing we're all working towards is getting you as fast as humanly possible to that place where the world is okay again. Yeah. And I think, it, look, in, in the end, of course we all want to be there again. Sure. You know, because that's, we don't want to live in this dark mm-hmm. place for the rest of our lives. But at the same time, you said honoring and just supporting the fact that that is the reality on the ground mm-hmm. and in the moment. And the goal is simply just to get through now, whatever that looks like. You've used the, the phrase a couple of times in the conversation the grief world, the widowed world, mm. almost as if it was this sort of like secret society. It kind of is. <laughs> so take me there a little bit. I mean, yeah, it's, um, especially in that, what I usually call the close to impact time after a death like this. And, and there's no timeline there. So sometimes people will say like, what do you mean by early grief? Like whatever you say it is, I don't care. One of the analogies I've used before is if you're at the movies and everybody's watching the same film, but the screen suddenly melts and splits in two. And now it's a horror movie. And it wasn't a horror movie. That wasn't what you bought tickets for. And you're watching this movie, this horror show. But everybody else around you is looking at the screen as though it's still the same movie. And if you start getting upset or freaking out, they're like, it's a movie. Eat your popcorn, right? But what you see is completely different than what they see. And it, it it's sort of like seeing thestrals, right? Like the reason why a lot of grieving people find the most companionship with other people who have suffered or survived devastating loss is because we see the same world. We don't know exactly what that's like for you, but like, oh yes, we recognize this territory. I recognize that face. I can walk down the sidewalk and recognize that face where somebody's world has just completely melted. It is a very different place. And it's not so much to say that if you haven't survived a loss like this, you can't understand. That's not accurate. But there's something very special about sitting with somebody whose loss has carved a similarly deep cavern in them. We recognize something. And I mean, this is true with anything. Like We gravitate towards people with whom we share experience Mm. or share a territory. It's like soldiers who serve together in wartime. Right, because we have a, a shared landscape and we know those places. And, you know, as yoga teachers, we like, we cluster around other yoga teachers, right? Because we have a shared language and shared language is important. So, you know, the, the grief world, the young widowed world, the, the people who have lost babies and children, like we, my phrase for that is out of order death. I, I think we have this, I don't know if you saw this, but there were some comments 
after Prince died, I promise I'm going to loop this back around, after Prince died where somebody actually commented like, what is this with all of these artists dying so young? We need to clean up our karma because this is messing with everything. I'm like, wait a minute, our collective karma caused Prince's death? Really? Oh, I hope I can link that back because I might have just lost my train of thought. But like sort of coming back to this idea that like somehow we're ultra powerful and we create other bad things that happen and that bad things that happen are evidence that we're wrong somehow. When you've had an out of order death, like you really get to see how ridiculous that is. And so I think that sometimes like my favorite thing about widowed folks and and folks who have lost children Oh, I know where I was going. Sorry. This is the inside of my brain sometimes. That idea that like when death happens, it's wrong, right? That like, you know, somebody dies at the end of a Western natural lifespan in their mid seventies. That's not unusual and it's not wrong. So I don't usually talk about death being a wrong thing. It happens, but there are deaths that are unusual that mess with the understood and expected order of things. And people who have survived those kinds of deaths, we just, we have something different. We have an understanding of our own selves and the world that is different, not better, not worse. It's just, it's a different orientation point. So not to say that people who experience sort of normal course of action deaths don't have that, but there's something very unique about out of order death or, you know, life-changing accidents or illnesses. I have a client who, you know, taking over the world, young man in his early thirties had just come back from a year trip around the world and dove into a pond and came out paralyzed, right? Like life changes like that. And there's just, there's something different about people who see that or who have experienced that. It is a whole different world. It's not a dark world. It's not a terrible world. It's a different world. And it does change the way that you see things. We're good people, the death folks. <laughs> Sitting across from you, so it's now, um, you're recording this in 2016, seven years post. Mm. You seem somebody who actually, you have this slightly devilish grin on your face as I'm looking at you, you laugh. <laughs> you seem to be in a place where you can find a lot of light in your life. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much light in my life. I'd like to think that a lot of that is because I went dark for so long, because I insisted on that for myself. I really didn't think any of my pre-death self survived. It did come back. I mean, this is, if anything, I'm goofier now than I was then. But this, this is who I was, and it survived that blast, and I'm amazed at that. What has happened since Matt's death is, you know, I would say after the first three years, because the first three years for me were really bleak and I wasn't sure I was going to survive and wasn't sure I wanted to. The only people I really laughed with were my fellow widowed people because we were dark and you could make those jokes. Nobody else could could make make. those (laughs) jokes. That's right. We, We could really make those jokes and we still make those jokes. I'm a lot less restrained with my inner dorkiness and fierceness than I used to be. I used to be a lot more like, I'll contain this and I won't do that. 
anymore. I can't, I can't really do that. Earlier in our talk, I was like, oh, I'm trying not to swear. I never swore before Matt died, ever. Now I'm a sailor. Like it's just, it's crazy pants. But they're spending all day, every day inside traumatic death and grief and loss and the random shit that can happen. I know more ways that people can die than most people normally think of. And there's a, I feel like there's a comfort in me with that. And that willingness to go to any of those places. There aren't many places that I won't go. In fact, there might only be one and we're not going there. I think because of that, I can be devilish and goofy and really passionate about how we care for each other and how we care for ourselves because there's no place I won't go. Because I'm allowed to be disruptive in really difficult ways and that's so much fun for me. I love messing with that stuff. And I, I still do the same work that I did before Matt died. It's just a different facet of it. I mean, before he died, even though I was burned out in my clinical work, I was still helping people find their own alignment and finding ways to live that out into the world and pointing out beauty and recognizing beauty. That has always been my work. And now that shines through this particular prism of traumatic grief and how we care for each other and how we fail each other as a culture and individuals, I get to shake shit up all the time. Like, how fun is that? I would have done that anyway. I was doing that anyway. I didn't need this. This is not the only true path I could have had. It is the path I have. And that I've found some beauty and some joy and some fun in it doesn't make his death okay. My life is incredibly beautiful and so much fun. And there are times when that hole that we talked about shows up again and I'm like, holy fuck, I have this entire life right now because of that beautiful, ordinary, fine summer day when I watched my love die. How is that possible? It just is. It's not a trade. It's what this life is. And I do my best. And I, I think that's what my message is for people in pain, is that it's not going to get better. It's going to get different. And what you have in your power is not how long you live or how long the people in your life live, but how closely you are aligned with your own heart and how much you're listening and how fierce you are for your own beauty and whatever joy you can find. It feels like a good time to uh, come full circle also. So. Yeah to ask you that final question. So we're sitting here with a project called The Good Life Project. So if I, if I offer that term to you, to live a good life, what does it feel like? Well, that's it, isn't it? That that's all we've got is listening. That's all we've got is checking in with what we need and what we want for ourselves. No matter what that is, like no matter what hurts or what's lifting you up or exciting you or grinding you into the dust like a good life is not a pretty life it's not there's a difference between pretty and beauty so for me a, a good life is always going to be one aligned with beauty and beauty is not easy and it's not pastel and puppy dogs and rainbows and happy endings it's not but it's also not bleak rocking in the corner in the basement forever there's a middle way there and that middle way is what you find while you're being as aligned and true to yourself as you can be, no matter what that looks like. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. And you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.